Welcome back to our Atheist Bible Study. I'm Ashton. And I'm Nicole. And this week, we're going to be talking not about the Bible for once. Uh, we're going to be talking about the movie The Shack. Yeah, why did we do this to ourselves? Uh, well, we did this because, despite the fact that my grandma knows I'm an atheist, she decided to send me as a Christmas gift the Christian movie The Shack. And here we are. We had originally planned to do a whole episode on the origins of Christmas and all the cool pagan stuff that gets tied into some of the religious stuff, like the Christmas tree and stockings and all that. But it turned out to be a bigger, bigger project than we thought it would be, and um, this was some low-hanging fruit, so we went for it. Yeah, we're going to hold that one off because we really want to make sure we do that one justice. There's, there's a lot there to look into. Yeah. All right, so let's just jump into it. So, The Shack. It is narrated by none other than Tim McGraw. And he starts explaining to us that this man thinks that he has spent an entire weekend with God in a shack. So right from the jump, just pretty, you know, putting it's it all the cards on the table. For yeah, Christian movies. <laughs> um, so My favorite th- line though from that intro is the, "It's a lot on the fantastic side, but that doesn't necessarily mean it's not true." Yeah. <laughs> all right. So our main character is Mac, and we meet him as a child. His father is abusive, an alcoholic, but also a church member. Uh, Mac's neighbor is a black woman who I, we know nothing about her. Maybe she lives alone. Maybe she doesn't, but she's warm and assertive and she is a comfort to Mac and she tells Mac to talk to God about his problems. So Mac decides to tell a church member about his father. He goes up to the front in church and he confesses that he can't make his dad stop when he starts drinking so obviously now all the church members know what his dad does. And so his dad decides to take him out uh, in the rain and whip him for it. This then prompts his mom to leave them. And she just leaves Mac a short note saying that hopefully he'll forgive her one day. And then we get a crazy twist. Mac poisons his father. <laughs> Got him. Yeah. And then we uh, jump forward to uh, a church where we see Mac all grown up and married. He's got a wife named Dan. They've been married for 13 years. They have three kids, Kate, Josh, and Missy. Missy is like the youngest, and she's the whippersnapper of the group. She's always asking all these questions that their parents don't quite know how to answer. Like uh, The first thing she asked is, why does God care if we're late if he's to church if he's with us all the time? And they're just like, man, that Missy, <laughs> she really knows how to... Yeah, she kind of reminds me of, like, Murphy in Interstellar, you know? Oh, yeah. Like, the, it's just, like, the, the youngest daughter and, like, the favorite of the dad. Mm-hmm. Just because she's kind of, she's always asking questions and she's got a fiery kind of demeanor. Yeah, she's a little out the box, but not too out the box. Not she doesn't believe in God. She's just got a lot of questions. Um, So they go to church. That's mm-hmm. when we meet Tim McGraw, who is Mac's neighbor. They have this, like, dumb little exchange to i don't know i guess cement their kind of relationship he asks mac if he's caught the game and he says no when do i ever have the remote and then like oh yeah like one day you'll get the remote back from your wife and he's like you know it's so crazy because i'm actually starting to like her shows (laughs) yeah i didn't catch any of that it was just oh i immediately caught the misogyny (laughs) (laughs) it's so crazy that you would i don't understand any of the conversation past did you catch the game i was like oh this is meaningless banter No, they have to establish that, like, oh, man, isn't the things that our wives like are stupid? Love them anyways, though. All right, so they are in church, 
Not a person of color in sight is a completely all-white shirt. That is important for later. Um, not in the plot line, just in my commentary. Then Tim McGraw starts talking more about the family. He says that Mac doesn't have a deep relationship with God like Dan does. Dan is so close to God, she actually calls God Papa, which Mac thinks is a little too familiar for his taste. Wait, what's her name? I thought it was Nan. Oh, shit. I wrote Dan in the notes. It's Nan. It's Nan. Sorry, I kept calling Mac's wife Dan. <laughs> I just so badly wanted her to be something not hetero in this movie. Um, no, her name is Nan. <laughs> After the scene in church, there's, there's some mention of a great sadness. And then it flashes to the scene in wintertime, which is obviously a metaphor, because winter is like the dark time in your life. And we know something bad has happened because Mac is moping around, but we don't know what. I don't know, there's this whole scene where he's trying to jump, like shovel his driveway. But the main point is, is he turns around and his mailbox is suddenly open and there's a note in it addressed to him. There's no uh, stamp or anything and there's no footprints that show that somebody like walked up and put it in there. And the note just simply says, meet me at the shack, and it's signed Papa. So then after looking at the note, he falls on the ice and he hits his head and then we get a flashback. And this is like the dark thing that happened. That is why Mac is so mopey right now. So he takes the kids out on a camping trip that his wife is not on. So they stop at a waterfall so Mac can tell Missy the story of the Indian princess. Which right away, don't really like that they called her an Indian princess. Should be you know, Native American would have been better, or indigenous, uh, but they went with Indian. Yep. And basically the story of the Indian Native American princess is that there is a bad sickness in the village, and the great spirit tells the princess that in order for the sickness to go away, she has to give her life. Well, they don't tell her this, they tell her father, but she overhears, and he's like, I'm not going to do that, but she heard it, so she jumps off of the cliff um, and kills herself. And then the sickness goes away. And then her father is so sad, he prays to the spirit that he doesn't want his the memory of his daughter to be forgotten. And so the waterfall is made. Yeah, apparently this is a real legend in some part of Oregon for oh. a waterfall. Uh, it's hard to say in my mind whether it is truly Native American in origin or a legend that just came from somewhere else. Yeah. Then they make it to the campsite. And Mac and Missy are looking up at the stars, and she's again asking some more difficult questions about the story that he told. So she starts asking him, you know, if the spirit and, and Papa or God are the same thing, and he just kind of gives some vague answer, you know, like maybe, which I think is pretty common for some Christians to just say that other people's gods are their God, and, you know, they're all the same. You know, some people kind of like to. Yeah, yeah. That, that's one of the things about the the native american princess story that really bothered me is this idea that christians in general and this movie kind of presented of oh it's it's all our god right all these other uh you know pagan gods or whatever right it's really them trying to get closer to our god the christian god which isn't true at all because their concept of i don't even feel like they had like the concept of one god you know they had other things to explain their ideologies, and it's completely different from ours. And we're not going to get into that, but I don't think it's the same. <laughs> yeah, and it, it just bothers me when Christians try to do this, and they try to, like, they try to see everything through a Christian lens yeah. and pull everyone in saying, oh, you're all, you're, you're getting all close, us, right? 
yeah, you're getting close. And it's this idea that these religions don't really stand alone. They're, they're almost there. They don't quite have the power that Christianity does. And they do the same thing with Judaism as a religion with this idea that it's just a precursor to Christianity, right? It's not a self-standing religion. Yeah. So she asks him then, well, then why is the spirit so mean? And he's like, why do you think they're mean? And she says, because, you know, the princess had to die. And then she brings up the fact that, you know, Jesus also had to die. And, you know, he rightfully calls this mean that they had to die. (laughs) And then his oldest daughter, Kate, speaks up and says, well, she speaks up because Missy asks if the story of the princess is real. And his dad just goes like, well, maybe. And then Kate speaks up and goes, well, we know Jesus is real because it's in the Bible. Yeah. Now, this is one of those parts of this movie that I really like because it, it feels like the movie is almost a little self-aware. Yeah. There's something on the ways in which the religion and, and these ideas are just so profoundly illogical. And so they... Basically, the whole conversation goes like this. Little Missy asks, is the Indian princess story real? Is that her dad says sometimes real stories become legends? Like, yeah, maybe something like it happened and it became the legend that we know. And then his daughter says, well, Jesus isn't a legend. Jesus really did die for our sins. And then the dad kind of sits on it for a second because it's clear that he struggles with that belief. And then he says, well, it's in the Bible, so it must be true, <laughs> right? It, that's yeah. like the, it feels like they're making fun of that, which is, but that's what they believe. Yeah, it's very clear to me that this movie, they intentionally thought out what are all, this is a movie made for people who are struggling with their faith. It's very clear why this was sent to us, because it is for people who have doubts or questions, and they are common doubts and questions, and they thought about those things, and they try to create arguments for each of them. And they didn't try very hard, it seems. No, they did not. And I don't, yeah. (laughs) (laughs) All right. So then Missy asks an even better question. She says, will God ever ask me to jump? And he's like, no, no, of course not. God is never going to ask you to die. That actually ties into something later that I didn't really think about until now. All right. So moving on, Kate and Josh are out in the water. They're in a canoe. Kate stands up in the canoe and she flips it. So. She's floating. They're both in life vests. She's floating outside the canoe. Josh is apparently stuck underneath the canoe, but he's in the life vest, but they're acting like he's in serious trouble. And for anybody who has seen El Dorado or any or the first pirate movie, we all know that there's air up at the top of the canoe yeah, <laughs> when it flips over. Flipped a little raft on a yeah. lake or in the pool or something. Yeah, but they're acting like, He's trapped under the water, basically, and is going to drown. So his dad jumps in the water, saves him. It seems like he has been under the water because they have to give him CPR, and it's this big whole thing. Everybody is, like, everybody's attention is drawn drawn to Josh. And in this time, Missy goes missing. So they can't find her anywhere. They show a couple of sequences of them looking for her. I don't know how long it's been, but the police are called right away, and they show up in, like, like there's a ton of cops out of nowhere for a little girl who has been missing for like two hours yeah that was the thing i was thinking about is like (laughs) there's nowhere they're putting out that kind of resources to a kid missing a couple hours yeah well then we get a little more extra information which is that there is a serial killer in the area (laughs) it's like why are they allowing these people to camp here yeah and like nobody knows yeah nobody's aware that there's apparently 
a guy who's been kidnapping children in the area. Another thing I noted is all these cops are all white males. And yeah, so Missy really is missing. They cannot find her. It is amazing to me that she got snatched in the middle of the day with nobody noticing mm-hmm. someone coming to the camp, but whatever. Uh, there's a huge FBI meeting in like some kind of gym somewhere. The mom shows up finally. And I know this is just literally every parent's unrealistic nightmare that they're going to turn their back on their kid for like two seconds and then turn around and they're gone. And they're not just gone, like lost. They've been snatched, like kidnapped. Yeah. And it just kind of gets more horrible from there. So the FBI tells them that they might have a lead on where she is um, up in this shack. And I have no idea why they do this, but they take the dad with them. I don't know if that's like a standard police protocol to take a relative to a murder scene, but this is what they do. Yeah. <laughs> so Mac flies in the hol- helicopter with them. They make to the shack. There's blood on the door, so, you know, we're assuming the worst at this point. They get inside. Missy is not there, but there is her little red dress that she was wearing, and there's blood on the floor. Yeah, what surprised me is I, th- I thought he was going to identify the body or something. Mm-hmm. And that's not what he was doing, so why did he need to be there? Just to traumatize him, really. Yeah, just for the story, his bra- I guess. Yeah, it's... Cinematic effect. Exactly. So then we flash back to the present where he wakes up on the sidewalk. His family returns, and he doesn't tell them about the weird note that he got from Papa because he thinks that, you know, potentially it could be from the serial killer. Um, We learn a little bit about Kate, who's been going to some therapy sessions because it seems like she's having a hard time. And in general, it just seems like Mac is kind of detached from his family at this point. Like, Mm -hmm. he doesn't really have a strong relationship with anybody. At one point, his wife even looks at him and says, and don't forget, we love each other. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) So he goes to his neighbor to talk about the note, and his neighbor tells him the same thing that uh, the kind woman from his past told him, which is, have you prayed about it? Which is the (laughs) most annoying thing, I think, as an American, where, you know, mass shootings were almost a daily occurrence before COVID, and everybody is, like, typing online thoughts and prayers. There's nothing more annoying than people asking you to pray about things to make things better. The only time where I think prayer is helpful to someone is if they're using it as, like, meditation. Especially in a situation where clearly nothing's going to change and get better in this situation. The only thing you could see prayer as is you working through something. So really his question is, like, asking, hey, have you thought about it? Yeah. Yeah, that's all I've fucking done. (laughs) I am dwelling on it, dude. All right, so then Mac makes up his mind. He's going to go to the shack, but he needs to borrow his neighbor's car. So he convinces his neighbor that he's, uh, his neighbor can come with him. He puts all this stuff together. There's a gun in the car in case it is the serial killer and not God. Uh, but this is all a ruse. Mac has no intention of bringing his neighbor with him. He just steals the car and goes. It's the perfect setup for this kind of Christian narrative of going and of seeing God. Where, oh, his friend can't be with him. There can't be a witness there to all of this. <laughs> right? Yeah. There, there has to be a way that he can go and do this, and everybody has to take his testimony for it. It's just like Moses in Mount Sinai. Mm-hmm. Exactly. Every, nobody can come up to the mountain. Yeah. So on his drive there, he starts hearing voices in his head, like kind of like mini flashbacks almost, and he's not paying attention to the road, and he almost gets hit by this big red semi. 
And for me, if you're trying to convince me that God is real, maybe make the main character a little more stable, you know? Yeah. I'm more likely to believe if this guy is in perfectly sound mental condition that he saw God than I am to believe if he's just a dude really going through things and is apparently hearing things. Yeah. So he gets up to the shack. He sees the blood stains are still there. He just starts going like bananas and throwing stuff around. And he gets to this point where he's about to kill himself. And then all of a sudden, a deer shows up at the door and he stops. And he steps outside the shack and he hears someone coming. So he assumes that it's a serial killer. It's not. It's just a nice Middle Eastern man with some wood who invites him to a different shack. He follows him. And all of a sudden, he steps out of all this, like, snow, and everything's thawed and green and luscious and beautiful and basically a completely different season. So this man leads him up to this house, and it's a very nice cottage core aesthetic. Everything <laughs> is, you know, it's an insulated shack, unlike the other one that he was in, where his... Okay, wait, hold on. We have to talk about how fucked up it is that God invited him to the murder site. Absolutely <laughs> demented. It is so twisted. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I was thinking that from the beginning. Yeah. Sorry, I just like thought about that a lot and forgot to mention it. So he gets up to this very lovely cottage. And this part is so ridiculous. So God is played by his neighbor from his childhood. And mm, I hate this part. So so then the Middle Eastern man, it turns out to be Jesus, which, you know, I guess bravo for getting the ethnicity closer and yeah. not casting Jared Leto as Jesus. Jared Leto? <laughs> <laughs> it seems the obvious choice to me. <laughs> um, and then the Holy Spirit is played by, this one is weird, because she is obviously an Asian woman, but I think... That we as the audience are supposed to think of her as the Native American princess. Yeah, she has a Hindu name. Yeah. So it's again that pointing towards that, like all gods, all of these are actually just within the Christian religion. Yeah. Okay. So to summarize, God is a black woman. Jesus is a Middle Eastern man. And the Holy Spirit is an Asian woman. So up until this point. There have been no people of color until we get to our characters who are going to help our white male protagonist grow and get over his issues. Yeah. And this is what is known as the magical Negro trope. So looking at the cover of this movie, I already knew this was going to be a thing. I who did also not. <laughs> was in the help. Yeah. Another really bad movie. Yeah. Which. Yes, as far plays as into white saviorism. Goes. Yeah. I did not anticipate them to throw in other minority groups <laughs> as magical beings to help the white male protagonist along on his journey. Yeah. Um, okay, so... Also, going along with that, though, as far as you know, white savior and stuff like that, one of the producers of this movie is a guy named Gil Netter, who also was a producer of The Blind Side. Oh, my God. Fuck The Blind Side. Uh, okay, so if you've never heard of the magical Negro trope, basically, it's what I described where it's normally it's a black character. Um, but as you can see in this movie, it can also be other minority characters or even people of like lower classes. And they have no background to their story. 
they just kind of show up out of nowhere and the only thing that they do in the movie is to drive the plot forward for the main character. Right. But they they don't have any development of their own. They just exist to help the protagonist. Yeah, and oftentimes they have some sort of disability or ailment, whether that be actual physical disability or it could just be social in nature, like racism or something like that. Right. So um, the textbook example of this is in The Green Mile. We are looking at, like, refreshing ourselves on this, uh, on the Wikipedia page, and they mentioned Batman Begins, Morgan Freeman, because Morgan Freeman's <laughs> character just gives him, you know, weapons and shit, yeah. but we know nothing of his background. So the main issue with using this trope is it just kind of mystifies these minority characters without diving into things that actually affect them. Right. So at this point in the story, I am assuming that he did die. I thought that he really did go through with his suicide attempt of shooting himself. And this is him meeting, you know, all the people in heaven. But he actually asks them if he's dead. And they say that, no, he isn't. Well, they, they ask, do you feel dead? Yeah. Which I think is funny. Yeah. I would have answered that with, I've never been dead before. I don't know. <laughs> I don't know what being dead feels like. When Max shows up, he's clearly very angry at God because his youngest daughter just died in a horrific way. I mean, she was killed by a serial killer. Yeah. And so he's, he's not very accepting of meeting God. And she says something like, when you only see pain, then you lose sight of God. This whole movie in a lot of ways is just kind of a list of the common arguments or, th or things that atheists say and them trying to counter them. And so they kind of work through him becoming a little bit more and a little bit more accepting of it and then eventually fully accepting God or whatever. Uh, but basically, this argument is him talking about all of the evil that God allows. Mm -hmm. And they fail to make any compelling counter to it at all. It's really just it's really just speaking in riddles, which is something that he says himself. He says, you're just speaking in riddles. They acknowledge that it's not a compelling argument at all. Right. And then he talks about when God supposedly allows Jesus to die on the cross and Jesus says, why, my, my father, why have you forsaken me? And to that, the response is just, that, you misunderstand the mysteries. Yeah, it's, and, and she tries to make this point that she was there too, that she was going through it with him like he wasn't alone right and the same with the daughter oh i was there for all of it right because he says like why, why weren't you there for my daughter why didn't you save her and she's like oh i was there for all of it like if i was talking to a person and this is what they told me i say that's even worse that yeah. you were there and did nothing yeah and they're always trying to play this card of they always kind of act like oh he can't stop everything like he has to or they have to allow something to happen some things to happen because of human nature or whatever and it's just it's bullshit because at one hand you're trying to say that this is some all-powerful being and then on the other hand you're trying to say well there's free will and it's not my fault that bad things happen it's actually your fault that bad things happen yeah and we get to that more later but here it's all just kind of riddles and then mm -hmm. also this idea that god is comforting these people the whole time right god is comforting her daughter the whole time it's like so you're telling me that she didn't suffer immensely because I think that's bullshit. Yeah. All right. So he yells at God um, and then they have dinner. 
and then he goes out and he talks to Jesus. And when he gets back to his room, there's a Bible in the nightstand. Gideon's International. <laughs> Little brand placement there. Mm-hmm. Aren't they the people who put uh, Bibles in like almost every hotel? Yep, they're the ones. Yeah. To me, that just felt like, so clearly this is an organized group of people who do this. But in the movie, it's just like, when you find a Bible in your nightstand, that means something. Yeah. <laughs> God put that there. <laughs> There's like, not nope. this company that's <laughs> distributing millions of Bibles everywhere with the goal of putting them in the face of people who are not Christians. Yeah. So then that night, he dream- he has a nightmare of his daughter being taken, and he wakes up the next morning. God is aware that he's had this nightmare. He says that she likes Neil Young. Then they have another argument. Sam, it, it's about punishment. And apparently God doesn't seem to think that they punish people. Yeah, and he asks the question, is there nobody that you're not especially fond of? Because she, she tells him that she's especially fond of him. Mm-hmm. And God says no. And to that I, I ask, what about the Canaanites? <laughs> What about that Old Testament stuff? And yeah, what about what about the sodomites? Yeah, and it's tell me it's stupid because she says that your problem is that you don't believe that I'm good. Yeah, and they, they go down that whole path of basically says if you believed that I was good, when all of this stuff happened, you would understand and interpret it as my goodness, which is essentially just- <laughs> is what the argument is. Yeah. If you just believed me to be good, then you could just interpret all of this with that perspective. Exactly. So it's like uh, if you cheated on me and you told me, Nicole, if you just believe that I didn't cheat on you, then I didn't cheat on you. Yeah. Right? If you believe that. <laughs> so it's just a lot. It, the, anytime God has a comeback or a response to it, it is always some weird riddle that they try to make it seem like, see, point blank, so simple. Like, it's right there. And it's just like, no, these arguments are nonsense, and they're barely, if you even want to call it an argument. Most of the time, she doesn't even acknowledge what he's angry about. Yeah. To me, it's uh, a logical argument, or any logical argument that I like to call proof by conviction. Mm -hmm. And it's where you just say something that sounds profound, Mm -hmm. but isn't, and you say it with a lot of conviction, like you really just strongly believe it. Because you believe it, they have to. Yeah. And that's kind of what the so-called God is doing. Yeah. And it's only compelling if you're a person who's already got a predisposition towards faith or piety. Yeah. The whole time, she's just always, like, smirking at him, just like, you don't understand. You know nothing. You don't know anything of my ways. So he gets mad, and he tries to leave, and tries to find his truck, and just go home. But then, I didn't mention this, but the Holy Spirit is pretty hot in this movie. Yep. She's an attractive lady. And so, she's the one who shows up. I thought about that multiple times, just because, like, the vibes <laughs> as as uh, as he follows her in the woods and stuff like that, like... Oh, there's sexual tension. Yeah. Yeah, I felt that, too. And that's why he stays. That's I'm convinced that's, that's why he thought, turns yeah. around. Yeah, he's like, you know, let's all hear out what this very, very beautiful woman is going to say to yep. me. And um, she just has these big, like, doe eyes that just draw you in. And she is like, I have something in my garden that I was working on that I thought this would help me with. <laughs> Anyways, the point is, is that it's very obvious that when he gets back home, he will be thinking of the Holy Spirit when he's fucking his wife. <laughs> As you should be. 
The Holy Spirit, Spirit. She should always be with you in the bedroom. Yes. <laughs> oh my gosh. All right. So she takes him into this garden and and she starts making him doubt if he really knows what good and evil is. So she asks him, Have you ever changed your mind about anything? You know, have you ever thought something was good and then changed your mind and thought it was bad? And then she starts planting the seed of like, maybe you don't know what's good and evil. Maybe only God knows what's good and evil. And you shouldn't, you know, worry your mortal little head about what's good and what's bad. And the thing about that is the idea of good and evil is subjective to begin with. And I don't think most people walk around going, that's good, that's evil, that's good, that's evil. Like, I'm sure most adults recognize that everything is either neither of those things or a combination of those things. Yeah. Like nothing is so simple as like good evil. Right. And this is a classic Christian argument from no universal moral rule. Mm -hmm. If you don't have a religion, then you don't have a universal moral rule, which is maybe a case for religion, but it's not a case for the truth of religion. And it, it ignores the fact that there are, many, many things that are universally understood in terms of morality, right? right? There's no culture in all of the world, and there are almost no people who would try to say that murder is moral. Right. So, yeah, it's just this whole, like, she says this, you know, oh my gosh, the whole world, all with their own ideas of what's moral, and then all these wars that'll be fought. Well, that's mm-hmm. what happens when you have religion that has conviction about those moral rules. Exactly. You get these kind of wars. Yeah. And it pretends that we can't come to a consensus and create a set of moral or ethical rules for how to govern ourselves without having that from some random group of people written into a book and pretended that God sent it down on a tablet. Well, that's what I was going to say. Is it, it begs we the have question laws. then is we can do that. Well, then where do we get? this sense of what's good and evil, if we don't know and God has to tell that, where do we get that th- from? And then the next step from that is like, oh, well, the Bible. But if we look at the fucking Bible, like it's just full of things that most people would agree are terrible and not the right decision to make. Like there's some good things in there, yes, but there's a lot in there that is has caused a lot of problems in our society today. Right, and then it's just, oh, you need to interpret it right and read the right things out of the Bible. Right. And then we're back to square one where we all have our different interpretations of the Bible. Exactly. So then the next part, he starts hanging out with Jesus again. Jesus lets him borrow a boat. He goes out onto the lake, and this weird thing starts happening where the lake turns, like, black, and his boat starts sinking and cracking, and he's panicking, and he thinks he's going to, like, drown, and then Jesus shows up again, and he's like, no, you need to look at me. You need to focus on me. Like, this is all in your head. It's not really happening. If you just, like, look at me, then everything's going to be fine. So he focuses on Jesus, and then his boat is fine, which is not how tragedies work. (laughs) Nope. If something bad is happening in my life, like if I am literally on a sinking boat, I can't just focus on Jesus, and then my boat's going to get fixed. Um, And then, of course, they use this as an opportunity for Jesus to walk on water and for him to walk on water with Jesus. And this part is strange because Jesus is wearing shoes. <laughs> I knew you were going to talk about this. <laughs> I can't get it out of my head. Jesus is wearing his shoes. But for some reason, Mac feels the need to take off his shoes and socks to walk on the water. And then in turn, that gives us like so many shots of his feet, <laughs> which is 
you know, for a man's feet, they're not bad, but so many shots of just like underneath as if you're underneath the water looking up at his feet. Very off-putting for me. So then once they reach the shore, they start having this other interesting conversation about religion. And it is implied that Jesus is not a fan. Not implied. Jesus says himself. Jesus basically makes a, he makes a statement that seems to suggest he supports spirituality, not religion. Yes. Okay. Which is a thing that is popular right now. There is something in there, though, where he says something like, do I look like I support religion or something like, or do I look like I'm Christian or something to that effect? Like, am I a Christian? And the answer is no. We understand that that he's Jewish, but as an audience, like as I'm picturing, you know, the people who are probably watching this other than us, I think that they're thinking he's Muslim. I didn't, yeah, I didn't think about that. All right. So then things get weird again. Jesus points Mac towards a cave that he walks into and this is where he meets wisdom. And wisdom, again, has a lot of very confusing... This feels like polytheism to me. <laughs> so many gods to keep track mm. of. Wisdom has a lot of weird and interesting things to say about Mac judging people. So kind of comes back to the conversation of you aren't the person to decide what's good and evil. And she starts asking, um, do you judge um, you know, this person for hitting their wife or hitting their children? Like, Do you judge that child? And he says, no, of course I don't judge that child. And then she's like, aha, like, that was your dad. He was abused by his father, and that's why he hit you. Yeah. And then um, she just says something like, so would we just keep going back and back and back? And then he's just like, well, yeah. And then she's like, and then we would get to Adam, <laughs> who started all of this. And the thing that is immediately obvious to me is Mac doesn't hit his children. Yeah. His father abused him, and he does not lay hands on his children in that way. So, Well, so they keep going down this thing where now he says he blames God, and then they, then Wisdom asks him to sort of take the place of God and say, one of your children will be condemned to hell while the other will go to heaven. Yes. And puts him in that situation, and he can't do it, and then he wants to sacrifice himself instead, blah, blah, blah. And then she's like, now you know why Jesus did it kind of thing. But first off, that is the stupidest shit because both of his children are relatively innocent. She just gives him this impossible scenario where she's like, send one of your kids to heaven and send one of them to hell. And he's like, I can't do it because it's not fair. And it's like, yeah, no shit, it's not fair. Like, I don't know why she's asking him to do that in the first place. Yeah, well, the whole thing is bizarre because, so it actually seems to be a universalist argument. It's it's like they're implying that everybody goes to heaven and God judges no one, which is not a Christian belief at all mm-hmm. and has gotten criticized in this movie by Christians. It's seen okay. as heresy. Yeah. Um, there have been, I found some articles where some were, were commenting on it and they don't like it at all because that's not what Christians believe. They don't believe everybody goes to heaven. To heaven. Right. If you hit your children or whatever, then yeah, you go to hell. Just yeah. like what Mac thinks. And that's kind of what Jesus was doing. It seemed like when he was talking about, he's not really a religion guy. It seemed like he was say, kind of saying like, you know, I'm a spiritual guy, mm-hmm. which is uh, what a lot of millennials and Gen Zers who were, who still kind of like Christianity mm-hmm. are kind of doing these days. Right. So that was strange. And also, Again, they've been kind of just addressing these sort of atheist comments on things. And no atheist argues that here's why God can't be real because, you know, 
God doesn't condemn enough people to hell because no one knows who God's condemning to hell. Mm -hmm. That's not the atheist argument. The atheist's argument is that God should be preventing these things from happening at all, which isn't what they were addressing in that whole little skit. Yeah. seems like this movie's argument is that people are complicated and they can do evil things, but they're still worthy of love and of life. Well, you don't need to be Christian to believe that. Yeah. Lots of humanist people believe that. And generally, I would be on board with believing that. That doesn't mean yeah. that I need a God to do it. Yeah. In but... fact, it works better without the idea of a God, because if there is an all-powerful God, they can prevent these things. Exactly. And it's a lot easier to understand complicated human nature if it's the messy consequences of biology rather than the pure design of an all-knowing God. Yeah. One other weird thing about this scene is, uh, so Mac starts arguing with Wisdom again about this and talking about God. And the whole time, they just completely switch her pronouns. And then they start using he pronouns for God. Consistently, they start using he pronouns to talk about God. Yeah, I haven't been tracking the pronouns throughout the movie. So I don't know, were they using that before? or I don't. I don't even remember them using she. Like, I don't ever remember them referring to God as a she. I don't think they ever did refer to her as she. They just said God. Yeah. And then, so then, again, we have another conversation about how, you know, God isn't the one who caused these things. It's evil and and sin, and that's why his daughter is dead. Which is another heretical idea, because it's saying that God is subject to fate as well. Mm -hmm. And doesn't ultimately have control. And then a waterfall starts flowing down at the opening of the cave. And he gets to see Missy again. She's playing with a bunch of other children in an open field. And Jesus is there. She can't see him, though, or hear him. But she can feel his presence. So he's happy that he got to see Missy. He goes back and he makes up with God. He's feeling a little bit better. He's kind of coming around to the idea that maybe God isn't so bad. Then next we get this scene where the Holy Spirit, Jesus, and God take him out to a field and they say that they're going to show him what they see. Basically, it's all these spirits wandering around in his field. And lo and behold, his father is there and his father starts walking towards him and he goes up to him and they have this moment where his father asks for his forgiveness and he asks for his father's forgiveness because it killed him. And they basically they make up and he's forgiven his father. Yeah. An interesting storyline for a group of people that overwhelmingly supports the death penalty in the United States. Mm -hmm. So then, the next day, they crank it up a notch, and God has changed forms into a Native American man. And his reason for this is, he says that you're going to need a father today. Mm Mm-hmm. And what the fuck? (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> yeah, this definitely felt like a little uh, traditional family kind of slip in. Mm-hmm. You need a father and a mother. Right. Like sometimes you needed your mother at first to be warm and welcoming and make you feel comfortable. But now you're going to need your father for this like, serious business. This yeah. hard stuff. This part is just the worst. So basically he leads him to where his dead daughter's body is. And he is faced with his with his with his daughter's dead body. And then God asks him to forgive the man who killed his daughter, which I think is completely unnecessary. They make this whole point about how this is for closure and he needs to do this to move on. Otherwise, he'll just be dragged down by this uh, sadness and grief and resentment. And 
I just don't think that's true. I think this is one of the things that I was really happy to unlearn from the Christian church, which is this idea that you have to forgive everybody who wrongs you. I don't think you have to do that Yeah, I think, to move on from something. Yeah. I think there are a lot of ways to deal with grief and to move on with things, and they don't all include this idea of direct forgiveness. You can move on and not be consumed by rage without forgiving that person or thinking that they're okay for what they did. Yeah, you can still move on with your life. And I think most of my family members, like, I think we're all kind of told stories in the church of people who forgave killers who killed their family in horrific ways. And most of the time, my family always was like, oh, yeah, I could never do that. <laughs> yeah. Like, that. you are a really good Christian, really strong Christian for you to you're a really strong Christian for forgiving that person for killing your family, but yeah, I could never do that. Yeah, and again, Christians as a group in the United States are not a particularly forgiving group. Yeah. 71% of white evangelicals support the death penalty compared to just 48% of people who say they're not a part of any particular religion. But yeah, you, you aren't required to forgive anybody. You can thank people for apologizing, but you don't have to forgive anybody. Then he has to carry his dead daughter all the way back to the shack where they put her in this box that Jesus made and they bury her. Then the Holy Spirit pours his tears over and this tree comes out of it. And it's this big kind of, I guess, healing moment for our Mac. And then they get back to the shack. And God makes him this very strange offer where he can either stay and live with them and then he'll get to see Bissy that night or he can go back to his family. Which is weird because then that makes me think like you're going to kill him because we at this point I'm thinking that he hasn't died. That he really has walked into this magical place. So I'm like they're going to kill him if he wants to stay. Yeah. Like how are they going to do that? Uh, but he doesn't decide to say, of course. He decides to go back to his family. And they tell him that, you know, when he gets back, he needs to be there for Kate because she blames herself for Missy's death because she was the one who stood up in the canoe. Yeah, I thought that whole conversation was a lot less played out than it could have been. Yeah. Like, they kind of have him sort of confront this idea really quickly of like, oh, you can stay with Missy forever or you can go back with your family and then see Missy again later. And I think that's actually could have been a more profound moment because really what he's facing, you take all the religion out of this, is he's got a decision to just sit there and mourn uh, his daughter forever and just let his mind just disintegrate over all of it. Mm -hmm. And basically to give up the rest of his family too. Yeah. Or he can choose to heal and move on and still have the rest of his family because his family is falling apart partly because he can't deal with it. Yeah. And that was like, I felt like really obvious in the beginning. It didn't seem like Mac's issue was a lack of God in his life. It seemed like he just wasn't communicating with his family and he was separating and distancing himself from all of them. Yeah. All right. So then he wakes up on the floor of the shack uh, where he, you know, before had the gun to his head. He gets back in the car that he drove there in and he drives back. And on the way back, he gets hit by that same red semi that we saw in the beginning. So then he wakes up in a coma in the hospital. And we find out he never went to the shack to begin with. Nope. He got hit by that red semi and he's been in a coma the whole weekend. Yep. 
But he still thinks that it happened. He's he's a believer now. Yeah. And his friend believes him. <laughs> yeah. I'm not. Tim McGraw believes him. All right. So then his whole family is there. He is is happy to see them. It's a very, like, Scrooge moment uh, where he's a changed man. He has this little moment with Kate where he tells Kate, you know, you don't need to blame yourself. And she just, like, has this, like, breakthrough, like, which they were clearly paying for therapy for her. So I don't understand how that did not come out at therapy. Yeah. That seems a very, like, obvious jump to make. Like, why are you feeling so torn up about your sister's death? Is it possible that you blame yourself because you were the <laughs> distraction that made it so nobody was watching Missy? Like, that seems like something that should have come out of very expensive counseling sessions. But it makes her feel better that her dad tells her that it's not her it's not her fault. So, yeah. And that's the end of the movie. And it did not change my mind. <laughs> no, it didn't really change anything. Uh, I am really curious to know what how many Christians watch this and assume that it's a quote true story or you know that this is somebody's actual testimony Mm -hmm. and i'm kind of curious to talk to my grandma about that because i think she does that they Mm -hmm. i think that's the assumption um but i i looked into it this is just some guy's stories that he wrote for his grandkids just made them up for his grandkids (laughs) to read as christmas presents (laughs) okay this movie did not make me believe but if i ever slip into a coma and convince that i met god then maybe, but then still probably not because I was in a coma the whole time. Yeah, I mean, I don't blame people who have these comas or or have things that happen to them that cause them to be in an altered mental state and they see things for believing in things that they believe they see. Mm-hmm. Okay, you know, I, I understand. If I thought I saw something, I might believe my senses but there's no real reason for everybody else to find that to be compelling testimony because we understand how these kinds of things work in the brain yeah because i have two points in my life where i thought a miracle had happened but when i tell them to you you will understand why (laughs) (laughs) i clearly don't believe that they are miracles so the first one is i was a very very young child and i lost a toy and i thought that it was out in the front yard somewhere when I, where I was playing with it. So I like leave my house, go look for it. It's nowhere. I'm like crying. I go back inside. And when I get back inside, it's waiting for me at the door of my bedroom. So at the time I thought God or maybe angels had placed it there for me because I was so devastated that I lost it. I know, but. That's not what my assumption would be. That would be <laughs> demonic doll. <laughs> oh, yeah. You, what movies were you watching? Nothing bad. Not the right ones. Yeah, I wasn't watching scary movies till later. And then the second time that I thought a miracle happened in my life, the first time I ever got drunk, I got really, really drunk on wine and I spilled a glass of wine all over this like nice microfiber blanket. And we, me and my friends were all drunk and we didn't know how to clean it up. So we, I, I think we made an attempt, but we were just like, oh, well, like it'll be fine. And when we woke up the next morning, there was no stain. Ooh. It was gone. <laughs> As you can see, both of those times, I was one, I was a very young child, and the other one, the first time I ever got drunk, and I was drunk off my ass. Yeah, it should be compelling as a disproof of these testimonies. I feel like that nearly all of them happen in an altered mental state. Like, we should really ask ourselves the question yeah. of why these never happen to purely sober people. Oh, yeah. Yeah, in conclusion, I am not, I wasn't convinced, but I, I I'm not saying I'm not open to it. If God wants to come, invite me to a shack where someone I knew and loved was brutally murdered, maybe I'll go. Yeah. 
Um, <laughs> yeah, overall, uh, it's a pretty bad movie. Uh, Wouldn't recommend, actually. The, the, the critics on Rotten Tomatoes destroyed this movie. They gave it like a 20%. Uh, but it got a 70-something to 80% amongst the audience. So there's a cash cow there for you know anyone who wants to make religious movies. You're going to find people who will sit and watch them and confirm their beliefs. Mm-hmm. And then buy it for their grandchildren. Yeah. Well, we'll be back next time uh, going back to Exodus instead of this little uh, bonus sidetrack here. Oh, also, uh, we do have a Twitter account called Atheist Bible Study. You can follow that for we announce when we're putting out our episodes because as of right now, we don't really have like a set schedule. Yeah. Not very consistent yet. <laughs> we're working on it. Yeah. Well, see you next time.